Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, uh, you may have a question that you uh, has come to mind as you've been studying God's Word or an issue that you're facing in your life that you'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can be of help, this is an opportunity for you to call us directly. Again, the local number is 843-525-1859. For our Internet listeners outside of the state of South Carolina, we have a toll-free number if you'd like to use it. And that number is 877-WAGP980. People also email us directly here into the studio. And there is an email address you can use. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Rick, good morning. As always, it's great to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor. The phone lines are already ringing. So we'll go ahead and... uh Give them an opportunity to step up to the plate, see if they want to go live. Um, Let me say, too, this is the last day for someone who'd like to go with us to Israel in the fall. So if you have a desire to come to Israel, today's the last day. You have to sign up by midnight. You can call the uh, Community Bible Church or go to cbcbuford.org. Yeah, now I had meant to ask you that when you mentioned that this past Sunday, you've got one opening left. Does yeah. that mean single or couple? Uh, it, it could be either. Okay. Yeah, it could be either. All so right. there's still an opening left. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Well, that's uh, exciting. That's going to be in September, um, yes. mid-September or so? September 3rd through 11th or whatever it is. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah. Excellent. All right. Good deal. Um, let's go ahead and uh, read a email question that came in to us from Bear, Delaware. Not okay. exactly sure where that is, but uh, Demiji writes, After being truly saved and born again, does this nullify sins committed after being saved, or perhaps if the saved man dies in the act of sinning and did not get the opportunity to repent, uh, will the man still make heaven? Well, the answer very simply is Yes. And I I think what uh, you may be confusing here is the difference between positional forgiveness and relational or what sometimes we call fellowship forgiveness. Positional forgiveness happens the moment you receive Christ, and it's not based on confessing your sin. It's based on acknowledging that you're a sinner, but putting your faith in Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection to save you. You know, sometimes people have had the false idea that if you just confess your sin, God will forgive you and that that's why they will go to heaven. And sometimes you ask an individual, hey, if you were to die right now and God said, why should I let you in? What would you say? And they'd say, well, I'm, I'm very sorry for my sins and I've asked God to forgive me and I believe he would. Well, that's not the right answer. Uh, if all we had to do was ask God to forgive us, 
then Jesus Christ could have come from heaven to earth and said, hey, listen, my father is a very forgiving God. All you need to do is ask him to forgive you and cleanse you. And if you're real sincere, he'll do it and you'll make it. But he didn't come simply to teach forgiveness. He came to die. God has to have a basis by which he can forgive. And for God just to forgive without justice being satisfied would be uh, would make him an unrighteous judge. But God is not unrighteous. But justice in mercy and love and grace met on a cross. And because God did what he did, he can invite us to put our faith in Christ. That's positional forgiveness. So you read a number of passages in the New Testament that speak of the fact that when you receive Christ as your Savior, everything is forgiven. For instance, in Colossians 1, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Colossians 2, likewise, he speaks of what we were like before we were saved. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what did he do? Well, he made you alive. He saved you. He made you alive. You were born again uh, together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us of all, A-double-L, all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we had a certificate of debt. On it was the decrees and laws of God that we broke, that condemned us, and God removed it. Paul, remember, is writing under house arrest. This is what we sometimes refer to as a prison epistle. And outside the door of uh, every victim, every uh, prisoner, uh, was a certificate of debt, and on it was the crime they had against Rome. Uh, and when a person paid his debt to society, they would literally remove the certificate of debt and write a Greek word across it and put the Roman imprimatur on it to tell us die. Uh, it's a Greek word that Jesus spoke in John 19.30. We've actually found a ancient certificate of debt. I say we, archaeology has, and it's on display in the Biblical Museum in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a word that means paid in full. God dealt completely with our sin. But while we are positionally, legally forgiven of all our, of our sin, when we get saved, we can still blow it as a Christian, and we need to ask God to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's where First John 1, 9 comes in. It's a verse written not to lost, but to save people, not to get saved again or to maintain salvation. Now, there have been groups like Catholics and even Pentecostalism, which typically is Arminian. They say you can lose your salvation, and they will argue, typically Pentecostals, that if you die with some unconfessed sin in your soul, that you can die and perish. Well, that's not the teaching of Scripture. That's the teaching of men, and it's really confusing, again, positional forgiveness from experiential forgiveness. You might want to listen, if you want a more in-depth answer, uh, to our Back to Basics series, and one of the messages in there, I think it's message number two, uh, and I spend uh, three hours on it, three one-hour messages on it. It's called Experiencing God's Love and Forgiveness, and I think this would be of huge help to you. Great question from Delaware. Let's go to our next question. All right, very good. Our next caller would like you to uh, let us know if you have uh, preached a message on who Satan is, what his role is now, and ultimately what will be his downfall. And if so, uh, is this in a series of messages? Of course, what is that series? Well, yes, I, I did a series on angelology. Uh, I reshot the first half of it, Angels That Help Us, 
uh, just because when I initially did it, the tape quality was not of the best. I mean, it's decent, but it's not like you would hear today. If you listen to maybe some message by Swindoll that he did in the 70s, you hear a little crack and sizzle in it, but sometimes they'll broadcast those old messages. Well, that's basically what this series sounds like, but it's still quite audible and quite fine. And the uh, second half, I've not reshot, but it's still available. It's called Angels Against Us, and I deal with the fall of Satan and his rebellion, his methodologies. We're not to be ignorant of his schemes, the Bible teaches us. The word schemes is the Greek word methodia. We get our word methodology. We're not to be ignorant of his methodologies. We're to know how the enemy operates, and we're to understand the divine weapons that God has given us to deal with Satan. So I deal with that whole thing. More recently, you can just go online. I did a series on Genesis a couple of years ago, And if you go to uh, Genesis 3, the very first sermon in there, I deal with the fall of Satan. But an in-depth study would be uh, the second half of my series on angelology, demons against us, Satan against us, angels against us, and I, I deal with that whole thing. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next listener is in a study of the book of Revelations, and uh, Revelation rather, and has been reading uh, Jimmy DeYoung's book on the chronology of Revelation. In Revelation 11.3, we learn of the two witnesses that will prophesy 1260 days. Mr. DeYoung believes that these two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch, but he also believes that these two witnesses were the two men that Luke 24.4 describes being at the tomb during Christ's resurrection, as well as being the two men present at his ascension in Acts 1.10. And Mark 16.1 also describes a young man in his account. I've always been under the impression, this person writes, that these were angels, as mentioned in John 20, verse 12, as well as Matthew 28, 5. However, now I'm not so sure. Doesn't the term angel sometimes refer to men in the sense of being messengers? What are your thoughts on this? Let me turn there to uh, Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. Uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, and by the way, that terminology is uh, used earlier when God describes the testimony of a local church. He describes their lampstand that can be removed. Well, these are two witnesses that are wit- are just that. They're lampstands. They're, they're lights to a lost world. And he says, if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth and every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist, that comes up out of the abyss, will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, um, and where their Lord was crucified, speaking here of Jerusalem. And those uh, from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies. I imagine will be on primetime CNN and Fox or whatever is playing at that time. And nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid on a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. Uh, they're they're going to celebrate. They're going to party. They'll rejoice over them and make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood to their feet and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies beheld them and so on. Um, so who are these witnesses? Um, Jimmy DeYoung, um, he's sometimes interviewed here on the Moody Broadcast Network. He's, he's a good fella. Uh, would I agree with his assessment here that these are the two men, so to speak, that are described in Luke 24? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Um, let me just turn there for just a moment. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. So um, are these two men just men? I don't think so. Again, when you uh, look at some other passages, it is true in Mark's account, which uh, your question references in that resurrection account. He he mentions um, a young man, if I remember. Let me just turn there. Uh, the reference he gave was Mark 16, 1. I don't think it's 16.1, but, um, and they were looking and they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Now underscore that you're thinking the stone was extremely large and entering the tomb. They saw a young man. That's verse five sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed and they said, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Uh, and again, uh, it's it's very clear here. He's not among, <clears throat> he is not here. Behold, he is the place, he is, <clears throat> excuse me, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they had laid him. Go tell Peter and his disciples, of course, that he's, he's risen. So um, when you read this passage, uh, are these just ordinary men? I don't think so. Now it is true, and uh, my guess is that this is the thrust of, um, Jimmy DeYoung's argument, though I've never heard him discuss this and I haven't read his book on Revelation, but it is true that sometimes in the Bible, uh, men are referred to as angeloi or angels. Uh, John the Baptist is called an angelos, singular. His disciples are called angeloi, plural. Uh, The word angel means a messenger. So it is true that sometimes the term is used to human messengers. I don't think so here because when you look at Matthew 28 in verse 5, it says, And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Now, the young is obviously saying, well, that's that's not a, a, a literal angel. That's just a, a, a messenger. And it is true in other languages uh, they uh, will just translate it angel. But again, I think when you put the accounts together, and there's one other account in John 20 and verse 12, and every English translation 
uh, because the word uh, angelos or angeloi, whether it's referring to one or both angels, is used. Uh, they translate it angel. And I don't think that that's by accident. In John chapter 20 and verse 12, it says, And behold, two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. So I think they are indeed angels, literal angels. And I think you have to argue that for several reasons, that they're not just men who are messengers. Number one, because of the apparel in which they are wearing. These are heavenly beings. It's dazzling white. But to the ministry that they have, um, they are indeed stronger and mightier than men, Peter tells us. Angels are stronger and mightier than men. This uh, stone would have been approximately two tons in weight. In fact, if the garden tomb is indeed the resurrection tomb of Christ, and I believe it is, and I think there's great evidence for that. That area had been silted in for about 1,800 years of time, and some archaeologists uh, uncovered it, and it fits perfectly the biblical account. But whether it is or not, whether you believe it is or not, it's a typical first century tomb. And so the stone that would have been rolled uh, in that slot was a huge stone, not a stone that a single individual could uh, handle on his own. It would take several men with some pry bars. And so the women, they think, who's going to move the stone? Well, somebody great and mighty, and that's an angelic being. Now, who are the two witnesses in the Revelation? I don't know. And Jimmy DeYoung doesn't know either because the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, I can make uh, some theological guesses. I think Elijah would certainly fit the bill. He mentions Elijah as being one possibility because this person's ministry certainly mimics the ministry of Elijah. Uh, He shut up the skies for three and a half years. And so very, very like this, one of these two prophets does the same thing. They, they stop the rain. Talk about drought. My, we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, number two, they turn the water to blood. That might be Moses. Now, he says Enoch, uh, and he's probably thinking, well, Enoch and Elijah were two men who were translated to heaven without ever seeing physical death. That's true. It's possible, though, very possible, that Moses' body is also in heaven. You say, why do you know, how do you know that? Well, number one, it does say in Deuteronomy 30 uh, that God buried Moses. Uh, so that, that is true. God buried Moses. But it also tells us in the book of Jude something that we don't know anywhere from the Old Testament, that there was a fight over the body of Moses. They argued over the body of Moses. And so, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, so not only do you have Deuteronomy, excuse, I think I said 30, Deuteronomy 34, where, where Moses is buried, you have this fight over the body of Moses that took place. What was that all about? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but it does tell us there was an argument that took place. Now, there's some extra biblical literature that has been written between the Testaments that say that there was such a fight and that Moses' body was then translated to heaven by Michael the archangel. Again, we don't know that's extra biblical. But certainly, uh, Moses' ministry was one of turning the waters to blood. And it is Moses and Elijah 
who are on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if I were to make a theological guess, and that's all it is, as to the identity of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, I'd probably say it was Moses and Elijah. But the fact is, nobody knows. But I can say this dogmatically, that the two men were not the same two that were at the tomb, that were not dealing with angels. And I think he really misunderstood the text, especially in light of Acts 11, uh, 1.10, which he also quotes. And clearly those are angels. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling today. Great. Um, I have a question regarding, um, I, I know it says in Scripture that anyone who adds or subtracts from, from the Bible itself is under a curse. And I, I'm wondering how in Roman Catholicism they can justify having more than 66 books in the Bible, which in my Bible, the, you know, our New American Standard, but that's what we have. Uh, it, that's always perplexed me, and I, I don't understand that. Well, let me just uh, respond to that. Uh, they would come back very simply and say, well, we're not adding or subtracting to the Bible. These are actually inspired words that God gave us. So their canon of Scripture is larger than 66. They take some of the books written between the Old and the New Testaments, that 400-year period where there was silence in Israel, no prophet of God, uh, and there is a number of books that were written that record history and some important history. In fact, if uh, you lived in 1611, in the very first edition of the King James Version, they translated the apocryphal books, those intertestament books, and they were in the very first edition of the King James. And the reason they put them there, and by the way, they put them between the Testaments, not interspersed through the Old Testaments like uh, through the Old Testament like the Roman Catholic Church does, but they put them there because they thought it would shed good historical data on the time leading up to the New Testament. And there are some information in that books that, in those books that are very very important that document some of the things that God said would happen even during the intertestament period, like uh, Daniel eleven that speaks of. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a picture of the coming Antichrist and uh, how he would be conquered and there would be four generals and, you know, it predicts what Alexander the Great is going to do, the four generals that come after him. In that intertestament period, literature records some of that along with secular historians of the day. So it it was important in that respect, but it was not inspired. In fact, uh, the Catholics came out and said, well, you see, all along, you guys obviously believed that that was part of the Word of God. And so in 1613, in the next edition of the King James Version of the Bible, uh, they removed those books. Now, the Catholic Bible has 83 books, uh, excuse me, 73 books. The Orthodox Bible has 81 books. And again, a lot depends on how you number the books, Um, For instance, in the Orthodox Bible, there's 151 psalms. We have 150 psalms in our Bible. They have an additional psalm. Uh, Some might call that a book, and so they get 81 and so on. Uh, In the Catholic Bible, the numbering's a little bit different. Uh, If you look in a Catholic Bible, they don't have uh, 12 chapters to the book of Daniel as we do. They have 14 chapters, and they add two intertestament books Bell and the Dragon and Susanna, and they put those as chapters 13 and 14. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think so, but uh, if you want to study this issue in greater depth, 
Uh, I did a course on bibliology. Uh, I spent, I think, 50 Wednesday nights teaching it over the course of about a year and three months. And one of the sections, it's section six. On, no, excuse me, it's not section six. That's on the English Bible. It's section five on canonicity. And why do we acknowledge just 66 books? And by the way, the New Testament acknowledges just 66 books. When Jesus looks back on the Old Testament, never quotes the intertestament books. Uh, the apostles in the New Testament never quote the intertestament books. They only quote the books of the Old Testament, um, the 27 books of the Old Testament. Now, in the Jewish Bible, they don't have 27 books. They have less than that, but they put a couple of books together that we separate, like First and Second Samuel is one book in the Hebrew Bible. First and Second Kings is one book in the Hebrew Bible. First and Second Chronicles is one book in the Hebrew Bible, but they have the same canon that we do. And so even Jews to this day, they never acknowledge that the intertestament writings that were done during that 400-year period by Jewish men, that those were inspired. Jesus didn't acknowledge them as, as inspired, nor did uh, the apostles. I think a bigger problem beside the, uh, the canon of Scripture is relates to whether or not Scripture alone is the final authority. And in Roman Catholicism, they would say it's not. They would say when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks with the same authority as the Bible. So they would not say that everything a Pope has ever said is true and on the same level, but only when he speaks in an official capacity from the chair of Rome. And so they would not say Scripture alone. They uh, add material to that. So if I were dealing with a Roman Catholic, I wouldn't go to the intertestament books argument so much as I would with other doctrines they have built through uh, the years that popes have created or made up or traditions that had been going through but were not authoritative traditions that they said were authoritative, like Mary being sinless, like Mary being literally physically ascended up and in, into heaven. Those are traditions, but those are things that are not taught in Scripture. In fact, some of them are obviously countered in Scripture. But in the 1800s, those two particular doctrines, for instance, became official doctrines of the Roman Church. So I would say go back, listen to my series on canonicity. It will really help you to think this through. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, Pastor, I wonder if you would... uh just talk about the liberty that we have as Christians, um, maybe in contrast or, or versus the, uh, the call to holiness. Uh, we're involved in some conversations right now <clears throat> on uh, specifically subjects like uh, tattoos and piercings and um, modesty and dress. And, uh, and I, we were saved at Community Bible Church and... Um, in your teaching, uh, you always exhorted us to holiness and to uh, a higher calling. And I'm just very naturally very aware of the, our sinful state. And, uh, you know, when I look in the Bible and I see Isaiah's reaction or uh, just see these men in the Bible falling on their face in the presence of God, and I'm, I'm just very aware of, of uh, God's holiness. And on the other side of that, I know that we have liberty in Christ and uh, 
we're free to that it's not our works that save us, obviously. Right. But um, I, I wonder if you would just comment on that. We're in a, a Baptist church currently, and it's a wonderful church. But um, um, one of the lay pastors, as they call them, has uh, gotten a tattoo, <laughs> and it's raised uh, a lot of issues within the church. So it's a good question, and unfortunately, today, if a believer, if a pastor uh, takes a stance on issues that very often, I think, are plainly taught in the Word of God, then you are called legalistic. You are told that you are squelching people's freedoms in Christ and so forth. Take, for instance, uh, one of the issues you raised, uh, modesty and clothing. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He said, likewise, I want women uh, to adorn themselves with proper clothing. The word adorn is the Greek word cosmios. We get our word cosmetics from it. Uh, To adorn themselves with uh, proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, uh, not with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, God advocates modesty. Now, I think this is a verse that sometimes has been abused in the history of the church. Some would say it's sinful for a woman to braid her hair. I've heard uh, heard a preacher once say, you know, demons live in those braids. I don't don't think so. Uh, That it's wrong for uh, a woman to adorn herself with uh, any kind of jewelry. Um, This is one of the not buts of Scripture. Uh, There are a number of not this, but this in Scripture that are uh, more comparative, uh, but not exclusive. For instance, in John 15, uh, Jesus makes this statement uh, in John uh, chapter 15, verse, let's see, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Not this, but this. Now, it's a comparison Um, He's speaking comparatively, but not exclusively. He is not saying that we're not slaves. In fact, he he taught that we should be slaves. And if you read the epistles of the New Testament, uh, Paul describes believers as such as slaves to Christ. But you're not exclusively a slave. You're also the Lord's friend when you receive Christ as your Savior. And so again, he's giving a comparison here. Some would say, well, you know, don't braid your hair. His point is, is that as Christians, we are to dress modestly and discreetly in a way that doesn't call attention to ourselves. And sometimes people come to church and when the person walks in, it's like, ooh, kind of shock treatment. You know, some bizarre hat on or some flashy dress that either is immodest or not discreet, and it's designed to say, look at me like a neon sign. And so God says, no, the focus should be internal, and that's what Peter says. So today, you know, you have Christians who go to church, take women, for instance, and their dresses look like, you know, a prostitute would wear. Uh, you can see cleavage and everything else. That That's not modest. You know, I tell men, nobody should see your wife's breasts but you. Um, But, you know, we live in a day where that's fashionable. And certainly a woman has to work very hard to uh, buy clothing that is modest. 
Uh, but we live in a day where, look, if you talk about dress standards, you're legalistic. Um, and again, some people are legalistic. They'll say a woman shouldn't wear pants. And they will appeal to a verse in Leviticus that a, a, a man should not dress up in a woman's clothing and a woman should not dress up in a man's clothing. Well, pants didn't exist when the Bible was written. Either testaments. There is something that came centuries later. What he's really talking about in that text, if you read it carefully, is cross-dressing, homosexual, transvestite-type behavior, bisexual-type behavior. He's not talking about, you know, it's a sin for a woman to wear pants. Now, some pants may be sinful for women to, to wear. They look like they're painted on. They're anything but modest. Um, and some dresses are sinful for a woman to wear. So God calls us to holiness. He's called us to be different. And in the day that we are living in, the more ungodly the world becomes, and this is what the Bible predicts will happen in the end of the last days, the more ungodly the world becomes, the more odd believers appear in both their behavior and their thoughts and their actions and in their dress. Uh, That's the reality. So nobody wants to offend anybody. You know, who would have ever dreamed that, you know, major major denominations would be advocating, you know, homosexual marriage and homosexual ordination? Who would have ever dreamed that megachurch pastors would not come out and say, it's sin, it's wicked, it's an abomination? But that's the day that we're living in. Um, We've done an about face, and it's the day that Jesus predicted would happen. It will be like the days of Lot. And so to call people to holiness, now the tattoo thing, that's another issue, and I've addressed it before in the Bible line. You can go into the archives. I don't think Christians should wear tattoos. Uh, Lay that aside. Um, There are a lot of Christians who have tattoos uh, from their past or some in their ignorance got tattoos. And, hey, listen, people are becoming uh, very used to tattoos. It's become very fashionable and the day that we live in. Maybe the devil is prepping a generation to take another tattoo called 666. We think sometimes it will be electronically planted in the hand or the forehead. Maybe it won't. Maybe it would just be a tattoo. It will be interesting to, to see how that all works out. But God has called us to be different. He has called us to be holy. So, you know, we got Christians today, they, they drink. They've got no backbone. You know, it used to be 30 years ago, you were in a minority. Less than 10% of evangelical Christians advocated it was okay to use alcohol. Now it's about reversed. I mean, it's hard to find Christians today who don't drink, who don't, you know, use alcohol. And so you're odd, you're weird if uh, if you abstain from from the use of, of strong drinks, something that God tells us not to use in his word except to a dying man. Uh, so the Lord has a different standard for his people. And many of God's people will not be understood, even by carnal Christians. He's understood by no man, the spiritual man. Um, and there's a, a worldly church that we live in. And now it's, it's, been doc, you know, it's been legitimized, especially in the reform movement, the whole drinking movement. Uh, it, you know, the restless, the reformed, and the drinking, um, MacArthur, I think, calls them. Uh, so many reformed people, they think nothing of drinking, and they advocate it. And it's very sad. It's very sad. It's the day that we live in, but God's called us to a different standard. Mm. Does that help, caller? 
Yeah, absolutely. My my biggest concern is I I see the world creeping into the church, and I would just question why we would want to do anything that that makes us look more like the world in an effort to to win to the world in or exactly to, uh, to feed our egos or or whatever the reason, whatever the cause may be. We're supposed to be in the world and not of the world. I know that's a tricky proposition, but. Well, you're, you're right, and um, that, that's, that's the sad day that we live in. We, we've got, you know, megachurch pastors, some of whom, you know, are basically um, fulfilling a prophecy that Second Timothy 3 speaks of, where he's giving a description of the last of the last days. We've been in the last days since, obviously, Pentecost, but Paul tells us in that epistle that things would go from bad to worse, and that's what we're seeing, and one of the first things that he lists it is the number one things that men would be lovers of self people are consumed with self tell me what i can do to love myself more to show myself off more and whole sermons are built on that my son and i and i were son and son-in-law and myself were just speaking the other day about you know he was saying you know all these pastors i'm listening to they're taking these passages from the word of god and they're just moralizing them they're not really teaching the text and they're not teaching it in the context of the whole of Scripture, where even the Old Testament speaks of Christ. And one mega church pastor said, well, you know, my sermons on Moses, a Jewish friend would benefit from, and he's not offended by them. Well, that's pretty sad. You know, and you've got, you know, guys like Joel Olstein. People ask me, do I believe he's a false prophet? I do. I think he's a false prophet. Now, that's not politically correct, but I think he's a false prophet. And, you know, he three times on Larry King Live, when given the opportunity to say that Jesus is the only way, you'd mean to tell me, you can type in Joel Olstein, Jesus, Larry King, you'll get the transcript. You can read his exact words. I'm not exaggerating. He denies that Jesus is the only way to God. It's not until he gets a backlash of, you know, funding that slows down that he comes out, well, I didn't really mean that. Well, look, he said it three times. And his sermons are, are, are less than what God calls us to do. And, you know, now we got another mega church pastor who comes out and preaches a sermon and he advocates that basically homosexuality is not wrong. He hasn't come out and clarified himself yet, though he's gotten thousands of letters and emails, but he won't come out and clarify himself. That's the day that we live in. Um, And it's a sad day, but we don't have to live like the world. And it's not our likeness to the world that wins the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world that truly wins genuine converts that God uses. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I appreciate that call. Right, indeed, Pastor. You know, I'm just getting ready to start the study of the book of Daniel in my adult Bible fellowship. Mm. And uh, what an appreciation I've, I've come to have for Daniel, especially as you read uh, how he behaved in uh, chapter one. Yes. Uh, set himself apart and uh, his uh, three friends there. And uh, it really is, speaks to how we ought to be as Christians. That's right. Our next question comes from Boone in Enterprise, Alabama. He writes, I have a friend that's a Christian for a number of reasons. He wants to convert to the Messianic Jewish faith, even though he is not of Jewish background. He is talking of following the Torah, etc. And my apologetics are weak when it comes to this. So I would appreciate godly wisdom to present him. Well, a couple thoughts just come to mind here. Um... Number one, things that God has relegated to the past, we shouldn't emphasize in the future. And and let me just say this. There are Messianic fellowships that have popped up in this country and other countries 
where Jewish believers get together, and it's a very Jewish-type service. And in many ways, number one, I think it's a violation of what God has called us to be in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul speaks of in Galatians 1, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Um, A little bit later in this book, in Galatians um, 3, verse 28, he'll say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we we don't bring into the present what God's relegated to the, the past. And when you emphasize some of the Old Testament practices, Um, you're really emphasizing the shadows of the Old Testament rather than the substance, which is Christ. That's one of the major underscoring doctrines of the book of Colossians. We, We don't worship the shadows, we worship the substance. But lay all that aside, because we are one in Christ, in Ephesians 2, Um, beginning in verse 11, all the way through that chapter, he underscores that God has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Greek, and he's made us into one body. And so when you emphasize Old Testament traditions and you incorporate those into your worship service, you're really in violation of the oneness that God has called us to make. And really, you see in churches like the church at Antioch, Acts 13, an integrated church, a church that comprises both Jew and Gentile. And it's um, and, and, and that's what God has called us to be. He's called us to be one. So the whole idea of some exclusive messianic fellowship, I, I suppose you could argue that if you're in some country that was all Jewish and there were no Gentiles anywhere. I don't know of any country like that, not even Israel. Um, so, you know, God has called us to be one. And you go into, by the way, a number of fellowships in Israel, and many of them are Jews and Gentiles brought together, Messianic believers. We have Arabs and Jews worshiping together, loving each other. Why? Because they're born again. Now, that's a testimony. That's a testimony in a place like Israel where there is this intense hatred between the Jew and the Arab, to have those two ethnicities brought together, Jew and Gentile brought together as one, um, loving each other through Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of conversion, and that's the kind of witness and testimony that we are to have. So I think your friend is um, unfortunately getting engaged in things that are are less than biblical, less than faithful to the model and to the commands that God has given us in the New Testament epistles. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, Over the last year, we've seen on TV uh, this 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 whole thing with uh, transgender uh, people changing their uh, sexual orientation. I think the most famous would be the daughter of Sonny and Cher, uh, Chastity Bono, who became Chaz Bono. 
And you see a lot of this, and I, I think it came to a head this past Sunday night when I was watching Dateline NBC about this 11-year-old child who was born a boy but felt like he wanted to be a girl, and the parents tried to steer him away from that but eventually gave in, and now they're, I guess, giving him estrogen, et cetera. Now, I don't want to judge the parents because I know they're hurting and they, they won't. They love their child, but I know it's sin, and I know you're not a doctor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I'm wondering if you could, is there something in the Bible or or any way to explain why certain children are born this way, and, and is it is it um, ultimately the fall and or the sins of the father, or is it something else? Well, first of all, let me just say without stutter or stammer that no one is born this way. No one. And when God created man, the Bible says he created them male and female. He created them in his own image. He created them male and female. So God created two distinct sexes. Now, what was going on in the history of that 11-year-old boy, I cannot say dogmatically because I do not have the facts and I've never interviewed him, but I can almost guess as a pastor because I've dealt with problems in 30-plus years of ministry. My guess is is that young 11-year-old was molested by someone of the same sex. And very often what happens is little children are molested. Uh, There is a sense of shame that they feel and a sense of embarrassment and hurt. And very often, uh, they don't know how to deal with this sense of shame where they feel so dirty and violated. And so the devil uses this as a platform to come along and to say, well, it's not wrong, so you don't have to feel shameful. And to prove it's not wrong, you need to begin to engage in this same kind of behavior yourself. And that's very often what happens. These parents, you know, um, you know, I don't know them from Adam, but, you know, obviously uh, they're lost. They should have never given in. Uh, doctors should not be allowed to create such, I think, sex changes in this country. But there's no such thing as a transgender. I mean, what is a transgender person? I mean, give me a break. But it's sad that we have a president of the United States and we have a vice president. We have many congressmen in both the Senate and in the House and who are, who are advocating that this kind of behavior is just fine. So, you know, last month the uh, Obama administration heralded, you know, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender persons. It was a month of celebration from the White House, and a document went out, just like there's documents for days of prayer. There was a document officially signed by the President of the United States advocating and promoting and endorsing this kind of behavior that God calls an abomination. Again, Jesus said this is what is going to happen in the end of time. It will be both like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the days of Lot were days of gross perversion. So this is just part of a perverted society. And somebody who's male and has his uh, private parts turned into female, basically they're engaging in, they want to engage in homosexual behavior and just to legitimize it a different way. I mean, it's it's, it's perverted, it's twisted, it's evil, it's awful, um, and you better protect your kids 
and watch very carefully and you can't you can't trust uh, you can trust very few people. You need to take charge of your children in the day that we live in because so many children now on the Internet are seeing this kind of behavior, and they're being taught in our public schools. You can go to any public library here in Beaufort County. Go to any public library here in Beaufort County and go read some of the children's books that are teaching the children. You know, Sally has two mommies, or Steve has two daddies. In books like that, that basically are teaching children that it's okay to be homosexual. And they're encouraging and promoting. This is the prince of the power of the air, the one who's energizing the sons of disobedience, who are feeding this kind of wickedness. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Our next listener would like you to speak about the evils of gambling. We often talk about drinking, but what about people who think it's harmless fun to gamble online, etc.? Well, it's not harmless fun. And, you know, as a pastor, I've seen, you know, families just destroyed, literally destroyed by gambling. And it's not something that God advocates. The biblical mandate for acquiring wealth is through work and not through wagering. And gambling basically denies the validity of work, and it emphasizes getting rich without work, something that Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 speaks against. So God's not in favor of it. It, it, it's, it's It's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. It's a form of covetousness. Whether it's sexual or sensual or material, it's abhorred by the Lord God. And God's not in favor of it. It's really a description of that parable that Jesus spoke of in, in Luke 12. And so when people place their, their uh, trust in luck rather than in God, they're denying God's sovereignty, God's providence over their life. And so no Christian ought to be involved in gambling. I don't think you should buy a lottery ticket. Um, I don't think you should. Um, and I, I see people on payday in these gas stations, sometimes buying a hundred or two hundred dollars worth of lottery tickets, and I see their kids, and the kids are suffering, and everything else is just sad. Anyway, let's go to another question. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I know that I cannot be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, and no one has ever achieved that or ever will. So when Christ says, like in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, keep my commandments, and other times where we're told to keep the commandments, yes. I mean, what what is he actually saying, or what you know? What I'm asking yeah, here? I, I understand your question. Uh, let me just give a commercial too for Thursday night at seven fifteen. Uh, twice a month, I do a meeting called Meet the Pastor, and at this meeting. I do an overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation in about 45 minutes. And I walk through the plan of salvation. And in that book, uh, booklet that I give to people who come, this collection of key verses, I describe, among other things, the relationship of good deeds to salvation. When Jesus spoke of works, he spoke of them in terms of the fruit of conversion, but not as the means to conversion. The law was given not to justify, but to terrify, as Luther would say. Um, it's our schoolmaster, it's our tutor, it's our teacher to lead us to faith in Christ. The law is like a mirror. 
when you look into the mirror at your physical face, you see dirt on it. When you look into God's mirror, the law, the commandments of God, you see the sin of your soul and your need to run to Jesus Christ for salvation. The most moral person in the world falls short of the glory of God. And this was a great difficulty that many of the religious people in Jesus' day had difficulty in seeing. Because they would look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunkards and they would say, well, clearly they're condemned, but we're fine. But Jesus said, actually, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the drunkards have a better chance of getting into the kingdom of God than you do. And I'm sure that was a shocker to them. And the reason those people had a better chance is that you didn't have to convince the prostitute or the drunk or the ripoff artist that they were dirty and defiled, that they needed the mercy of God. They knew they were sinners. And in that sense, they were a far better candidate for salvation. If all I have to do is live better than Hitler, then I'm a shoo-in into God's kingdom. But Hitler is not the standard of comparison. The standard of comparison is Jesus Christ, the glory, the perfection, God in human flesh, in all of God's holiness is Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, the one who is tempted in all ways is we are yet without sin. Uh, The sinless son of God next to him, the ground's level, and we're all desperately in need of a savior. So when a person has this genuine birth from above, and the problem is, is many people don't understand how to have that birth from above. And so they're trying to live a Christian life without being born again. That's like trying to operate your toaster and make the bread go down and darken it and everything else when it's not plugged into the wall. And they scratch their heads and they get frustrated and they say, God, why is my life not changing? And I want to be different. It's because they've never had a birth from above. And that's what I deal with in this Thursday night meeting. I deal with so many misconceptions that people have as to how someone really gets saved. Because people say, well, you know, I did that. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I shook the preacher's hand. I I became a member. I, I got baptized. But my life never really changed and took on a new direction. And they're confusing what it means to be born again with that of just being religious. So anyone listening to me, come Thursday night. I've got child care provided. It's going to be at 715. We call it Meet the Pastor. Drive around to the back of Community Bible Church. Come in through the glass doors. You'll see someone with a badge on. They'll point you in the direction of the room that I'll be meeting with individuals. And I hope this caller will come. Go online. Listen today to a presentation I have at searchthescriptures.org. Would you like to have God as your friend? That would also be very, very helpful to you. Anyway, we're out of time for today. Uh, There's several questions we didn't get to, but it's always a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to be with you here on the Bible Line. I hope you have a great day. May God bless you as you walk in Jesus Christ.